You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 31. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is released to you, runway 411 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude is We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Viper check two. Viper check two. I've had three uh, engine failures, catastrophic engine failures. Uh, luckily, all three were over airports. So I've had three dead sticks where the prop, like, literally just running and then burp, stops. For me, this isn't a hobby or a weekend play thing. Like, it's something that I want to be the best at. And I relentlessly work to be the best at it and to be at that high level. Welcome and thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is Kevin Coleman, good buddy of mine. He is an air show pilot and an air racer and some exciting news. He is joining as the only American in the new and upcoming world championship air race. He'll be in the Aero GP1 category. And if you're interested in just a little bit of his aviation journey, what it takes to be an airshow pilot, what it takes to compete at a level of uh, a world championship in air racing, because believe it or not, it's tough to fly down low to the ground real fast. We're going to talk all about that today. If you're looking to have some additional content, the podcast, I have a Patreon page where supporters get exclusive access to some behind the scenes. And there I was stories, not to mention some merchandise, depending on what level you join at. And merchandise includes coffee mugs, hats, stickers, and some leather patches. The podcast is growing and I'm excited uh, about that and really want to say thanks to all those who've gone over there to iTunes and taken the three to five seconds to leave a five-star review and just a couple comments. That helps the algorithms do their magic and show this podcast to more people. And if you want to watch this podcast, ventured into YouTube, so YouTube, uh, you can search for the Afterburn podcast. There's some flying videos as well as these video episode, video interviews are up there. So swing over to YouTube, check that out. If again, you're looking for some more content, but in the meantime, let's get into the podcast with Kevin Coleman. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining me, man. Happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, talk about your aviation career, a few stories. Um, it's exciting to have you on here. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. You know, it's, uh, it's been an exciting few weeks for us uh, announcing that we're the only American pilot in the New World Championship Air Race. That's a big honor and uh, looking forward to 2022 for that. Yeah, dude, we're going to dig into that. But before we do that, will you give everyone kind of like the 30-second elevator pitch of who you are and just a snapshot of like where it began and where you end, and then we'll uh, we'll dig into that. Yeah, so my name is Kevin Coleman. Uh, I'm an American aerobatic air show pilot and now air race pilot. Uh, I grew up in an aviation family. My dad uh, flew air shows as a hobby uh, before I was born until I was seven. And then my older brother started flying air shows then. So I grew up going to air shows, flying air shows and flying aerobatics is all I wanted to do since I was three years old. So uh, I started taking aerobatic lessons from a guy named Marion Cole when I was 10 years old. And uh, like I said, ever since I was three, this has been my focus. And uh, I've just been lucky and had the right opportunities to make it all work. Well, you say luck that that's definitely, I mean, it's probably a small piece of it, right, right place, right time, but to pursue a passion like you're doing 
from such a young age to now, like you don't just do that and just like stumble across it. I've seen you fly. Uh, it is insane. Like that takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication to get to that point. So it's not just something that you can just fall into and say, oh, here it goes. It definitely helps to know the right people, right? To get you to the exposure and things like that. But yeah, lucky for me, like, uh, like I said, I, I grew up in it. So uh, my dad has a passion for it. Uh, my mom is, I mean, I've been flying air shows for uh, 12 years now. I'm 30. So actually, it's my 13th year of flying air shows. So uh, at first, my mom didn't really particularly like it, but she's gr- uh, grown to like it a little more now. Uh, so yeah, I've just I've been lucky. I grew up in the right family with the right opportunities, and I just try to take advantage of all those opportunities. I've been able to work with the best people in the world and uh, the best coaches in the world. So uh, every opportunity that I get, I just try to try to take and uh, make the best of it. Yeah. So you say your mom doesn't really like it. I think that is something that is probably not uncommon amongst uh, air show performers wives, girlfriends, boy, whatever it is, um, because it can't be dangerous. Can you tell me just a little bit about, you know, how you approach flying air shows or flying races, because you are buying inherent risk when you do that. So what's your take on it? How do you approach it? How do you mitigate that risk? Yeah. You know, there is risk in everything we do. Um, you know, from a young age, it's been drilled into me to be a precise pilot, uh, with any kind of flying, if you're just flying around or if you're doing a competition aerobatics, air show aerobatics or race. So, uh, being precise and being perfectly calculated is just something that's been in my head. So, you know, preparation for an air show or preparation, preparation for an air race for me all goes back in to me being lucky and having the right opportunity. All I do is fly aerobatic airplanes. So, um, you know, 10 months out of the year, I'm doing nothing but flying aerobatics. I'm only focused on aerobatics. I'm only focused on racing. Uh, so just the right opportunity for me to be able to solely focus on this is what's made it uh, made it really good for me. Obviously, there's always the risk, like I said, with, with the air show flying low to the ground, with the air race flying low to the ground. Um, but as long as you have the right preparation and the right mindset and understand those those risks and how to mitigate those risks and make them as small as possible. It's really a pretty safe sport to be in, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's what you're doing the F-16 demo. That was a pretty rare thing for F-16 pilots to do. It's just not normal to pull that many G's that low to the ground, but I say it was inherently safe, right? Because that was my only focus at the time. That's all I did. Now there are a couple of things, which I think most people found surprising. It was like, Hey, what's the most dangerous maneuver that you do? I mean, obviously pulling the G's repeatedly, like the chance of, blacking out that would be a pretty instant uh debbie downer but the split s maneuver i think was my most dangerous maneuver that's the one where um if you goof that one up and i probably military demos if you went back over the course of all the accidents you probably find the majority of them were in the split s maneuver which is a relatively benign maneuver in my opinion but that's that's part of it too that leads down the trail is there anything particular what's your take on that is there a maneuver that you do that like, you know, this is the riskiest one. You really got to be focused or is it all of them? Uh, it's funny that you bring up split S. So a split S is something that an airshow pilot, a civilian airshow pilot would never do. You hardly ever, 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 ever see a civilian airshow pilot do any kind of split S maneuver. Uh, just because there's a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of factors that go into split S. You got to make sure your altitude is right on top, speeds right on top. There's a lot of factors. Uh, so you won't ever see a civilian airshow pilot really do a split S. For me, you know, when people ask, like, what's the most dangerous thing that you do? 
honestly, we practice it so much and I do it so much that for me in my mind, it's all equal. Um, you know, there's not one for me that is, uh, more dangerous or more out of control. Like when you watch people like myself or, or Michael Goulian or Rob Holland or any of these guys that are really good and the airplane's tumbling around and it looks totally out of control, it's actually completely in control. We can stop the tumble in any attitude that we want, any direction that we want. So, um, but if I guess if I had to pick one, there's not a lot of people that uh, push around corners to the surface anymore. And I'm one of the few doing that. Uh, people don't do it just because it's really uncomfortable. Uh, and it takes a lot of practice to be able to do that safely. And uh, there's a few other elements to go into it. So probably if I had to pick one thing that I'm doing right now that a lot of people aren't doing would be pushing to the surface. So like I'll push around a corner you know, five, six, seven negative G's to 15, 10, 15 feet off the surface. So, um, pushing is always harder than pulling. And, you know, it's one thing, the pushing is something that I watched Sean Tucker do as a kid. And it always impressed me because there's not a lot of, like I said, there's not a lot of people that are pushing around corners to the surface. And, uh, every time I saw Tucker do it, I just thought it was the most impressive thing ever. So, uh, it's something that I set out to do, um, I really started working on it maybe six or seven years ago and then started adding it to my show about four years ago. So it took me about two years to get good enough where no matter what the wind conditions were, crosswind, headwind, tailwind, whatever, whatever the conditions were for me to be completely confident that rounding the corner wouldn't be a big deal. So, uh, now I would say that's probably the thing that scares the most people because you, even as some of my coaches watch me and other air show performers watch me, uh, just pushing to the surface is just an uncomfortable feeling and an uncomfortable thing to watch, but, uh, it's probably the one that I enjoy the most, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, I just threw up listening to that because I did negative four with Rob and that was a terrible experience, but I know it's just like anything you get used to it, I'm sure. But here, can you kind of walk me through that? Because in my mind, as I listen to you and I'm trying to think about, I don't know if I've seen you push around a corner. I'm sure now I'll be very attuned to it when you're doing that. Obviously, you're the only one in the air show box, not a factor there, but your visibility, like I'm used to pulling G's looking out the top of the canopy and you can see where you're going, you can see where you're pulling to versus if you're pushing, you got the bottom of the plane or is that not a factor? It's not a factor because you're upside down. So I'm looking through the canopy. So actually pushing around a corner in the extra is uh, better visibility than pulling around a corner. Yeah. Okay. So just the way that the airplane's coming down and where I'm sitting and I'm able to look, I actually have a much better view of the ground than I would if I was pulling around the corner. So really going back to it, just the hardest thing about pushing is just being uncomfortable. And I've just had the right people and the right coaches where all these uncomfortable positions for me are comfortable. So, um, you know, when I'm pushing around the corner or pushing up to a vertical or anything, uh, you know, it's just something that I'm comfortable with and something I've been training for my whole life and I'm used to, and it's actually just another day, as you know, when you're doing the F-16 demo, uh, you kind of just get in a rhythm and everybody that doesn't see it every day is like, wow, this is amazing, which it is. <laughs> but for you, it's just your job. It's just another day. Like everything's, Hey, it's just a Tuesday. Right. Uh, I'm just here to do my job. How many times do you fly a week? Uh, during the season, I'll start training about March 1st and my season usually goes through November and I'll fly two times a day, five days a week. Okay. Uh, when I'm really training. So, and I would say that's 
more than most, you know, me and Rob really push each other really hard and practice a bunch. Um, Rob's, I've always had a, a big practice ethic. Uh, myself and Bill Stein always practice a bunch. And now when I started flying with Rob, dang, probably like seven or eight years ago, we both push each other really hard. So we practice a bunch, uh, which is why, you know, Rob has elevated himself to the top, top of the top. So, um, if I can just try to catch up and keep up with him, that's the goal. <laughs> well, I mean, a benefit too, is like you're down in Louisiana, you guys have an aerobatic box right there at the airport. So you can go out there and it's relatively low density airspace. So I imagine activating the airspace is not that big of a deal. So you can go out there and just get a lot of reps, which is nice. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, the practice area that we have is a aerobatic box at the airport, like you said, from the surface to five thousand feet. So, plenty of room. Uh, you know, I can fly as much as I want. We don't have any noise complaints or anything like that. Uh, the community around here really supports the whole aerobatic flying thing, which is quite funny. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm lucky again. That just falls in the luck. I'm right place, right time, with the right opportunity, and uh, just trying to make the best of that. So you're, uh, for those who are listening, this is also up on YouTube. Kevin's decked out in some Red Bull gear, which is another piece of this. So you do the air show piece, which is awesome, but also the racing piece. So you're a Red Bull air racer up until, well, I guess, was it last year when they finally made the announcement they were going to stop doing that series? But you got some big news, too, coming out uh, this last week or so. Yeah, I was part of the Red Bull air race from 2016 until it ended in 2019. Uh, that was something that was a long process, uh, for me, um, in 2003, when the Red Bull era started, obviously Michael Gulling and Kirby Chambliss were a part of that. And, uh, I was already flying aerobatics, already getting lessons and I was 13 years old. So, uh, when I saw that, I'm like, Hey, I want to do that too. So kind of set out to do that. And when I was 20, uh, in 2010, I was flying air shows and that's when Red Bull era started recruiting me. And that uh, kind of started the process of doing aerobatic camps with a coach over in Europe and going back and forth to Europe, flying aerobatics. And then um, everything fell into place again, right time, right opportunity, and got lucky and took advantage of the situation I was in. And in 2015, I got invited to do a, a rookie camp for the pylons for the Red Bull Air Race. And uh, there was, I think my class was six or seven people and three of us went through. Okay. Um, had an awesome career in the lower series of the Red Bull Air Race. Um, always uh, was in the championship hunt every year, won races every year, uh, kind of was always right there. So in 2019, it was kind of a bummer when Red Bull said that they were pulling the plug on it and the project was over. But now there's the new one. So it's the World Championship Air Race, new investors. Really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be for the most part, it's going to be Red Bull air race with new ownership. Okay. Uh, a few different pilots, um, a few different locations. So really looking forward to it. And, um, yeah, it announced last Friday that I was the only American pilot nice. in the Aero GP one class. So really looking forward to the opportunity. I already got a good team around me with, uh, with everything, got a good airplane, we just got done with 10 days of testing with it, trying to make it better and figure out its weaknesses and its strong points and uh, just trying to make it better and get ready for the 2022 season. What do the logistics look like behind doing a world air race? It's obviously, you're playing, you can't go hop across the ocean and all these race sites. I imagine it's going to be kind of like Red Bull, like you mentioned, it's going to be across the globe. So 
what does that look like? Yeah, it's really amazing uh, what goes into the air race. You know, about 400 people travel with the air race. And that's everybody from the caterers, the janitors, to the people putting up the hangers, to the pilots, to everything, the media, everything. So it's a big undertaking. It's really amazing when we get to a location, you know, two weeks before the location, and it's just a normal city downtown or a normal airport, wherever we're at. And then on race weekend, it's like our own little city, you know, how everything goes up, how the hangers go up, how the control towers go up. Uh, it's really amazing how all that works. and everything that goes into it. Most of the time, uh, everything is air freighted. So the airplanes get taken apart. Uh, the race airplanes get taken apart and, uh, put into special boxes and air freighted all over the world. Sometimes they go, uh, sea freight. So yeah, it's, it really is an amazing undertaking what, what the organization has to do. And, uh, the, the whole team, like I said, from the janitors all the way to the pilots, how it all has to work in unison for, to have the to have the races and like I said it's about 400 people to make all that happen. How big is your team? Uh my team right now is 3 uh myself plus 3 people okay. so obviously I fly the plane uh, a guy named Jason Reese who worked for Kirby Chambliss for 16 years uh as his technician uh has come on board our team now. Uh so he's by far the best um aerobatic airplane maintainer uh on the planet. I mean especially when it comes to the Edge 540, which is what I'll be flying in the race. Uh, he knows more about it than anybody else. So I'm glad to have him, lucky to have him. Uh, I have Paulo Iscold as the as our engineer and tactician. Paulo worked for uh, Paul Bonham uh, in 2015, and they won a world championship uh, in the air race. And then he came on with Kirby when Paul retired. So I started working with Paulo uh, in 2016 when I came to the race. and. Uh, we started all of my success in their race. A lot has to do with Paulo and uh, his help and uh, what he brings. So I'm super lucky to have him on the team because he won't admit it, but I'm sure that every team has called him trying to hire him. So it's, uh, it's an honor <laughs> to have him on our team. And uh, just hired a girl. Her name is Cambry Laurent. She uh, is going to be doing all of our comms and PR stuff. So uh, she's going to be a real asset to the team too. So we've got a good pl- good team in place. We have a good airplane and uh, hopefully we can just put all the pieces together and I can do my part and we should win races in the first year. What, uh, so you're saying 2022 is when the season kicks off. I imagine just between now and then it's just doing some practice, lining the team up, getting things in a rhythm and you're going to be doing air shows as well. So that's a pretty busy 21, but are there going to be any practice races or is that going to be something you're all just kind of doing at home? Yeah, right now, everything's just kind of at home. Uh, like you said, flying air shows full-time. So uh, we're going to be bouncing back and forth. Right now, the airplane's in California, which is where uh, Paulo is based. He's a professor there at Cal Poly. He's an aeronautical engineer professor. Uh, so we're just going to be bouncing back and forth, flying air shows, going to California, uh, making new mods for the plane, trying to get it ready. Hopefully, we'll have all the mods and everything done by middle of July. We'll have about a month of test fly in August to make sure all the mods work and uh, get it repainted and rebranded and everything. And uh, it'll probably ship uh, to go to the first race, I would assume, sometime in November or December. So we've got a bunch to do in a short amount of time, but uh, no doubt we'll get it done. What uh, goes into like the modification? Is this, I mean, is this sitting in a wind tunnel and you're going through just trying to streamline as much as you can, as well as, I don't know, tweaking some of the 
the inner workings of the plane and the motor just to give you just a little bit more power and things like yeah, that. There's um there's more that goes into these race teams than people than people see or people know. Um Usually I just stay out of it and I'm letting Paulo <laughs> deal with it. Paulo's an aeronautical engineer. He's world champion air race. Uh, he's built all kind of world record airplanes. Um, so I just fly the airplane and give him feedback and let <laughs> him do the designing and modifications and whatever he thinks is going to make the airplane better. I trust that he can do it. So um, when it comes to that stuff, I'm just the dummy in the, in the cockpit. I tell him what it feels like, what I think can be better and let him go from there and him and Jason, uh, you know, Paulo will design the parts and the mods that we want to do. And then him and Jason will build them out of carbon. Uh, so, you know, a lot goes into the weight of the airplane and where we want the weight to be and, uh, making minimum weight. And, um, so, I mean, again, there's so much that goes into these race planes. I can't go into too much detail about what we've got going right now, but, yeah. Uh, we've got some really good, Apollo's got some really good ideas and we did some testing on that, uh, over the last couple of weeks and we're moving the airplane in a, in a good direction. It was already in a really good spot, but it's, uh, even just after 10 days of testing, it's already in a better spot. So no doubt by the time the 2022 race season comes, we'll be in a very, very good spot to, to be competitive. Yeah. You sound like you're kind of like me, like, I just want to go faster. I don't really care how <laughs> it gets there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> The hardest part is just writing the checks. Uh, <laughs> it's expensive to mod these things. They're expensive airplanes. But yeah, I mean, I'm just, I let everybody, the way our team's working right now is everybody has their job. Everybody has what they're really good at. Um, like I said, Paulo's one of the most respected aeronautical engineers on the planet. He's uh, built a bunch, bunch of airplanes, won a air race world championship, designed some stuff for NASA. Uh, so that's his thing. Whatever he thinks is going to make it better, cool. You do that. Uh, Jason helps with that, helps make the airplane better and keeps the airplane maintained at the highest level possible. And, uh, you know, Cambry makes sure all that happens in a timely manner and everything's organized and I fly the plane. So yeah. uh, I try, try not to micromanage, let those people do what they're good at and then just let me do what I do. And uh, so far, so good. You know, nobody... There's nobody get, I'm not getting anybody's way. Apollo, you know, it's, it, everything's working very nice. And I really, really like where the direction's going and, uh, just allowing people to do their job. Like, yep. you know, you're a fighter pilot. Uh, you have your crew guys, your crew guys are good at what they do or they wouldn't be there. You're good at what you do or you wouldn't be there. So they let you fly the airplane. They don't try to tell you how to fly the airplane, I assume. And you don't try to tell them how to maintain it. So, uh, let them do their job and what they're good at and you do your job and everything works perfectly. So that's what, uh, that's what our team is structured like. Nice. Uh, backing up just a little bit. So you said you just turned 30, right? Relatively young dude. I would imagine if we did a cross section of what, like one air show pilots in general, I know that is like no kidding. A problem is because everyone is aging out. Mikey G, if you're here, if you're listening to this, um, but no, it's air. I mean, air show pilots, uh, older air show racers during the Red Bull series, uh, older. So getting young people involved in this sport is somewhat of a challenge, right? There's, there's some hurdles to get involved in it, but you're one of the guys who kind of broke through that barrier. Were there any challenges that you faced, you know, as a young guy kind of working your way into this field and this career? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you know, honestly, it just goes, one reason why, you know, 
for the longest time. I was the youngest at this and the youngest at that. And still, I guess, kind of the youngest still on the air show circuit full time that I can think of. But when I was 18, like I was flying air shows. And uh, I mean, I don't know what the average air show pilot age is. I would say 40s, mid 40s kind of thing. Yeah. And the reason for that, it's a super expensive sport to get into. Uh, and that just goes back to where I was lucky with the right opportunity is my dad has a passion for it and did it. Uh, my mom, and my dad made a bunch of sacrifices and gave me every opportunity that I needed. And again, I took full advantage of all those opportunities because I knew that how lucky I was and not a lot of people get the opportunities that I got. So try not to ever take advantage of, of any opportunity that I have. And I think I've taken full advantage of all of them. Um, but yeah, that's just the hardest thing, man. You know, it's just aviation is an expensive thing to get into, but I think, you know, what people need to realize is it's attainable by anybody. You know, there's, and that goes for anything. If you just set whatever goal you have and just relentlessly go after that, you know, there's no way that you won't succeed at it. And, you know, it was a pretty low probability, I think, of myself getting into air race. Uh, when I was a young, I was the youngest person to ever get into Red Bull air race and youngest person to win a race and all that kind of stuff. That was all super low probability probably, but, um, I always go with the mentality that I'm not gonna let anybody outwork me. Um, so I get up earlier than everybody else. I'll go to bed later than everybody else. I'll practice more than anybody else. And I think just that relentless attitude, uh, is what's got me here. And, uh, a little bit is just, I had a lot to prove because I would say that the people that didn't know me or didn't know my family in, in aviation had the perception that, uh, you know, I was just there flying aerobatics as a 16 year old or a 17 year old because my dad gave me the opportunity, just gave that to me. And I was just like doing it because I didn't have anything else to do or whatever. And the people that know me knew that that's had been my goal since I was three years old and know how much I've worked at it, how hard I've worked at it and how I was just relentless at getting there. And I think that over the years, uh, the people that doubted me or, or thought that I was there just because my dad was uh, wealthy enough or whatever to give me the opportunity for me to just go screw off uh, flying aerobatics have come to realize how bad I want it and how hard I work at it. And, uh, you know, for me, this isn't a hobby or a, a weekend play thing. Like, it's something that I want to be the best at. Uh, and I relentlessly work, like I said, to be the best at it and to be at that high level. And, you know, I got married a year and a half ago and me and my wife talk about it. And people ask me, friends ask me, like, how long are you going to do it? And uh, I, I always tell everybody I will quit flying aerobatics full time when I'm 50 or whenever I'm not any good anymore. So whichever one of those comes <laughs> first. So. Whenever I think that I'm not at a very high level, then I'm going to quit doing it because I don't want to do it at a at a lower level than I'm at right now. Yeah. Well, so you, you brought up some interesting points, right? Like aviation, it's tough to get into it usually because this is expensive, right? But there's lots of ways to do it. Me, like military was a great way of doing it, right? The government's paying for my check and paying for my, my, my training. So there are ways to do it. But even someone like you, right, who had some opportunities uh, because your parents were involved in aviation and surrounded by it, um, I've watched plenty of people who have squandered opportunities out there that they could have had whatever, you know, because their parents were involved in X, Y, or Z, and they could have pursued that. And they either chose something different 
or they just kind of fizzled out, right? So you don't get to where you're at and you don't get to the level you're at without having that passion, without having that drive, right? Uh, and everyone's going to have different hurdles, like no matter what. And it's going to be easier for some versus others. But yeah, I think that's one thing that's you, you whatever passion you go out there and you find, you have to have the drive to go out there and be the best, no matter what it is, if a firefighter, a doctor, lawyer, right. you know, otherwise, I don't know, you just kind of stumble through life. And at the end of it, you're like, well, what did I accomplish? That's the way at least I look at it, you know? No, for sure. Uh, and that's like, you know, going back to what I've said several times already is every opportunity I've been given, I've tried to take full advantage of it and, uh, you know, do everything I can do to, to accept that opportunity and be the best at it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people, I'm not real, not a real public person. So like, I don't put a whole lot out there. Uh, I'm trying to get a little more active on social media, but, and stuff like that. but. I think what people don't realize is how hard that I've worked uh, since I was literally 10 years old, starting to fly aerobatics, getting aerobatic lessons, how hard I've worked every single day uh, to get to where I'm at now. Um, And that's just one of those things that you can be given the opportunity to do it. You can have the resources to do it, but you still got to put your ass in the seat and do the time to get to where you want to be if that's what you want to do. So. a lot of work uh, every day, but I wouldn't change it or trade it for anything. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, kind of back, I would like to talk to just kind of like training in general. Is there anything that was particularly tough for you, you know, to learn or to overcome, whether it be like just, I don't know, nose to the grind. It doesn't sound like that was a problem, right? Because you had that passion. Was there anything that you really had to just like kind of push through in order to get to the next step or get to the next level? Yeah, I see people, uh, I mean, I can think of a couple offhand that are around my age that are that probably have more natural talent than I have. Uh, flying aerobatics is not easy for me. Uh, that's one reason why I practice so much. I don't. I think maybe some parts have come kind of easy, but for the most part, it's been pretty hard for me to do it. Um, it takes a lot of effort from myself to be at the level that I want to be at. You know, and I see people that are, are probably better than me naturally. Uh, and then they just don't care or whatever. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but yeah, for me, like it just, it, I never thought that it was easy or it never came easy. Like I didn't ever just get an airplane and just naturally be good at it. And I didn't think so for me, it just takes a lot of focus and a lot of preparation to, to be at a high level. And, uh, I mean, that's one reason why I practice so much and I work so hard at it. It's because it takes that much from me to be at that level. Um, and I'm sure, you know, with you and your military flying, you've seen guys, I'm not sure what category you're in, but you've seen guys where it just comes natural and it just works for them. And then you got some guys that have to work really hard at it. And I just happen to be one of those guys that has to work really hard at it uh, to be where I want to be. Yeah, I think that's a valid thing. And I know there's a lot of stories out there. I've had, you know, buddies who are professional baseball players who had brothers. and They're like, yeah, my brother was better than me, but he just didn't care. didn't have that drive, you know, they had to like yeah. hustle. And then, again, that, that ties back to, I think a theme that I've talked about and it's like, no matter what profession you go out there and pursue or passion, right? Like it's going to take a lot of work. If you want to be the, the best at it yeah. again, there gonna be different hurdles for different people and you're going to stumble at different points. But nonetheless, like if you want to, if you want to win at it, it's going to take some effort, you know, yeah. if it's, if it's worth pursuing it, I'm sure there's, there's easy stuff out there. Uh, if you're an underwater basket weaver, like that's probably going to take some work too, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
So I kind of too want to talk about the any kind of like scares or anything like that that you've run across while flying. I know I've had a few from like my brakes not working, which I think my brakes not working is probably the winner uh, because there's nothing that's more unsettling than when you just have seen the end of the runway coming at you a couple hundred knots. But is there any kind of like scares that you've had while flying air shows or air races? You know, uh, flying the airplane, not really because, uh, I mean, I've been coached so hard and been prepared so much literally since I was 10 years old that I'm already so in tune with the airplane and I'm in it so much that, you know, the airplane really never surprises me. I've had three, uh, engine failures, catastrophic engine failures. Uh, luckily all three were over airports. Yep. Um, so I've had three dead sticks where the, in the extras where the prop like literally just running and then stops. No kidding. Um, so in the moment, uh, I had two here at home, uh, that completely stopped. And I had one in St. Augustine, Florida. And in the moment, like, I don't really, I didn't think about it. It was just reaction. Like I've trained for this. I know exactly what to do. Get the nose over, get the airspeed up, pick a spot, go for it. I was able to land on the runway all three times. And, and, and as you know, like when you're in the moment and the adrenaline's going, your my training instantly kicked in. I didn't have to think about anything. It was just reaction. Right. So in the moment, got it on the ground and everything's good. And then you start to think about like, Oh wow. Like that's pretty scary. And, uh, you know, that, is that could have been bad. Um, so it's, it's interesting how, and being a military guy, I know that y'all are trained crazier than anybody else, but it's amazing how your training kicks in and you don't have to think about it. It just happens. And you know exactly what to do without thinking at all about it. I mean, cause all those engine failures, I mean, from the time the prop stopped, you know, and I'm at a, two of them, I was at a thousand feet pretty slow one of them was in a hover. So I was at zero miles an hour and, um, <laughs> it's yeah, it goes <laughs> and it stops. And, um, you know, it's just interesting when you train hard at something, even just learning how to fly, you know, you do engine failure stuff and engine out stuff, but it's amazing to me how, when you really focus on stuff and you really think about it all the time and you go through all the scenarios, how your brain just reacts and then your, your hands and your feet react without thinking. and you do exactly what you know you're supposed to do. So I, I wouldn't say that I've ever been scared in the airplane because those few, those handful of times uh, when I was in the plane and stuff, something bad happened, uh, I just reacted. And then it was scary after the fact. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like losing brakes or something when you're in an F-16 and you're going fast, that might be scary in the moment. I could see that for sure. Uh, but yeah, for me, I think that everything that's happened to me so far, uh, it was just scary after the fact, like after you sit down and you start thinking about it, you're like, Whoa, that could have been really, really, really bad. I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Do you practice inside your routine at different points that, Hey, the motor quits and you just do a practice, you know, flame out landing. Yeah. So, uh, I would say that my practice routine and my discipline is different than everybody else's or a lot different than a lot of people's. Uh, every year at the beginning of the year, I don't go straight to the surface. I'll go up high. I'll go through all my spins. I'll put the airplane in all kind of crazy, unusual attitudes that I'll never be in. Have it do all kind of crazy stuff. Have it recover. Make sure all my minimum altitude recoveries are uh, the same as they should be. And then I'll start putting together my sequence and I'll start at 500 feet and I'll do a week there. And then I'll come to 250 and I'll do a week there. And then I'll slowly work to the surface. You know, I think a lot of people don't build down like that 
but that's what I've always done. That's what Marion Cole taught me how to do. That's what Bill Stein and uh, Sean Tucker, and that's what Rob does. All the all the guys that you look at and you're like, okay, they're really, really good. And all the guys that have been doing it for a long time, like Sean Tucker and, and Bill and uh, Kirby and Michael, they've been doing it for a long time for a reason because they've been doing it right. If you don't do it right, usually you get killed pretty quick doing it. So, uh, and those guys, you know, take that same attitude where you start slow, build your detox back up, make sure everything's good. It's been a long winter doing whatever you're doing and, uh, just slowly work your way to the ground. Don't go straight to the surface. How do you practice kind of shifting gears kind of back to the air races? How do you practice for that? Because that's all around pylons. Do you have pylons or what are you doing to prep for that? We have uh, a couple um, practice tools for that we have on our team uh, that we use. The main thing with air race, though, is just keeping your G tolerance up. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that and girls that are in the air race don't necessarily have another aerobatic airplane. So I have had the advantage of always being able to keep my G tolerance up, even when we're in between races. Uh, you know, I'm always in an aerobatic airplane. Some of these guys are airline pilots. And then they go to their race, and that's the first time they've been in an aerobatic airplane since last race. So one advantage I have is, like I said, being in the, these kind of airplanes every day, all day. The main thing with the race flying is just the G tolerance because you're sustaining so many Gs for extended periods of time. Uh, you know, because we can go up to twelve Gs in the race. Um, so that's probably the hardest physical part about it. Um, for me, I do about 80 to a hundred hours of studying, uh, before each race, uh, like, uh, studying on the computer, studying the track, having different wind conditions, uh, going through all that stuff. So when I get to the racetrack and I'm diving into the racetrack for the first time, I have my plan. I know exactly what it's going to look like. I know exactly what I need to do, uh, in the racetrack, uh, depending on the wind direction and all that kind of stuff. So that's one thing that Paulo really helps with and something that we take very seriously because, on a race weekend, you really get like 10 minutes in the track, which isn't very much. So, you know, if you get there and you waste three minutes trying to learn the track, uh, you know, you've wasted a third of your time already and now you've got to catch up. So for us, we come way over prepared and, uh, that way when we're in the track, it's useful information the whole time and we never get behind. Is that something too, like I assume the track as they build it for wherever it might be, they provide that information to all the racers. And then I'm assuming you probably can do some kind of 3d modeling and then you're running through that. Then, you know, uh, 15, not cross from the right, 15, not cross from the left. And then that's going to change where you're targeting as you're hitting each pylon. That's at least I got, yeah, exactly. Know anything. So about three weeks before each race, they'll send us the track. Um, Paulo has a system that he'll use and then send to me. Um, for us to to look at and to go through and to make notes. So it's really interesting how the air race works and how precise you have to be to be fast because most of the races, I think the most I ever won a race by was like a tenth and a half. <laughs> but if you take your iPhone right now and you hit yeah. start and stop as fast as you can, it'll be a tenth and a half. Yeah. So you do a three-mile track and it comes down to inches, literally inches. And so, you know, whoever is mentally better, mentally prepared is who is usually going to win. Um, what's crazy about our race and our racetrack is it's, uh, we, me and Paula say it's alive. So I have buddies that race NASCAR, uh, who are in the top series who are very good. Their tracks are always the same, like same, 
uh, oval or whatever, right? Obviously, humidity and wind affect them and uh, track temperature affect them. Tire wear affects them. But our track is alive constantly. So every minute, our track's changing with wind direction, wind speed, humidity, DA, uh, as you know, uh, temperature. All these things change the track completely. So if you have a wind, let's just say out of the north at 10 knots, and then later in the afternoon, now it's out of the east at 10 knots. The track is completely different. And you have to be able to recognize that, adapt, and come up with a different plan. Because now, just that little shift in wind is going to change your whole line through the track, the fastest line through the track. Um, so it's really interesting how it works. And uh, how we think about it being alive is the best way to think about it. Like It's always changing. Every minute is different. And you have to be able to see that and adapt. and understand what's happening with the track and what's going to make it slower, what's going to make it faster, because all those things are constantly changing. So I've only watched the races on TV and yeah, that takes, I don't know, it was like three hours, four hours, kind of from start to finish. Uh, Is that a normal race day where you're going to get all the races in, in that window? I wish it was only three or four hours for us. Uh, (laughs) Usually a race day for us is a long day, probably like a 14 hour day. Uh, I mean, obviously the race itself, of course, is three hours. Yep. But by the time, you know, you wake up and leave the hotel, get to the race airport, you know, make sure everything's in line. I'll sit down with Paulo. We'll go over all the data. Um, We already have a plan the day before the race of what we're going to do. But, you know, we'll sit down in the morning like, okay, the wind changed this. So you need to do this. And uh, it's a little bit warmer. So this is going to happen. And, uh, you know, it's a little more humid, so the wing's going to react different, and we need to do this, and we need to do that. So you just nail down all those fine details. And that is, like again, the people that are mentally prepared and the people that can take those very, very, very tiny details and make them right are going to be the ones that win. So a lot goes into goes into a race day and, and a preparation for sure. Well, and kind of, I guess I should have prefaced it. Where I'm curious is, you know, the fact, just like density altitude, right? Someone who's not very smart like me, I, I at least know that's going to change like throughout the day as it warms up and you're mentioning yep. humidity. So the guy who's first out the gate in Fort Worth, Texas, right? Where it's probably 80 degrees. By the time, you know, two or three hours later, now it's 95, 98 degrees. You're at a, I would imagine... I think a significant disadvantage from the guy who flew, you know, an hour or two hours prior to you. Is that not, I mean, how does that factor in? Yeah. Luckily the way the format works is the head to head thing. So usually the person you're flying against is all that really matters. And usually you're within a couple minutes of those guys. Okay. So that's really all that matters. Um, Qualifying uh, for the race uh, on Saturday is usually where you'll see a pretty big difference because that'll last, you know, hour and a half or something. So it might be an hour and a half from the first guy to the last guy. And like you're talking about it, a lot of things can change. The wind could die down, the wind can increase. Um, and that's just kind of luck of the draw. But when you get on race day and it's head to head, you're within a couple minutes of whoever you're directly competing against to get to the next round. So it doesn't usually have that much of effect. What you'll see is when you're head to head and you're doing all that, and you're going through the race, the first group that flies might be faster or slower than the last group that flies as a whole, just because of the conditions changing. Okay. So, uh, you know, let's just say the first group does a 55 second, a 56 second. And then the last group does a 58 second, a 59 second. It's not because those pilots are any worse than the first group. 
It's just because the conditions have changed in whatever way to make it slower or faster. Gotcha. Other thing. So how much does it matter? So if you're going head to head competition, are you guys taking off at the same time one guy's holding to entering the track or is it you have racer one takes off, flies the track, then racer two takes off? Because I would imagine two, like if you're holding, you're I'm burning, I don't know, a gallon, two gallons yeah. of gas, like all of those things come into play. And when you're talking a tenth of a second. Yeah. So that's where, uh, so we're, uh, sanctioned by the FAI. Um, so after the race, so there's a minimum takeoff weight that you have to make, and there's also a minimum landing weight. So you take off pretty much the same time when you get out of the airplane, the airplane is reweighed. So before you take off the pilot and the airplanes weighed at race weight. So with gas, with smoke oil, and you have to make the minimum weight. When you come back, the airplane goes on the scales, the pilot gets on the scales and there's a certain percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. That's Jason's job, not mine, to make sure there. So you can only move the weight a certain percentage. Okay. Um, so that's how they keep all that fair. So uh, the airplanes and the pilots are constantly weighed to, to stay as fair as possible on that. But before that, you're exactly right. People would take off, and whoever the first guy was to fly would be at a weight disadvantage because the guy in the hold would be out there full rich, wide open, burning as much gas as possible, trying to make it as light as possible. So it was interesting before the the Red Bull Air Race, the way it progressed is because the pilots just got smart. Like you'd see people taxiing around at 1800 RPM, just dragging <laughs> the brakes, burning gas, trying to make it lighter. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> then the organization's like, okay, you can't do that. And then you had people out there full rich, just burning as much gas. Like, okay, well, you can't do that. So that's when, you know, the rule book is this big in the beginning and now it's this big now because people like Kirby and Michael and those guys have just continuously find a way, <laughs> push the rules. Um, so, you know, like we got our rule book um, two weeks ago and, you know, it's Paulo's job not to read the rules. It's Paulo's job to read what the rules don't say. So don't read what they say. I want you to read what they don't say. Yeah. And that's what I want you to focus on. You read in between the lines. You don't read the lines. And uh, that's why every year the rule book just gets a little bit bigger because <laughs> there's a lot of smart people uh, that are out there trying to find an advantage. And this is, I mean, now thinking about it too, right? Like even your weight, because as you get the plane getting modified, I imagine 12 ounces here, four ounces there, you know, everything that you can trim off that plane and make it more efficient is critical. So even you, I would think in the pilot weight, I mean, is that a factor or is that not something? For sure. It's a factor. So, um, right now I'm at 170, 170, 170 pounds. And that's a really comfortable spot for me. that's just kind of where I am all the time. That's just where my body wants to be. Uh, Paulo wants me under 160, um, because <laughs> every pound that I can lose we can move every pound the airplane loses and every pound that I lose, we can put weight where we want it. And as a pilot, you know, yeah. uh, where the weight is matters a lot for the race. We want an aft CG, so it'll turn better. So every pound that I lose is a pound that we can put in the tail uh, or wherever Paulo decides that he wants to put it. So yeah, it's extremely big deal. It, it gets so crazy that, um, you know, guys are, I mean, it's ridiculous what we'll do for literally ounces. Uh, you know, if you take a half-inch screw that's usually in the cowling and it's got four threads coming through it and you only want one thread, you'll shave it down three threads. 
So, you know, you'll take that much off of a screw to save that much weight. But if you do that on a hundred screws, it's like, I mean, it's not enough to do anything. It's like ounces still, right, but, but every little, every little bit counts. So people are grinding down screws where there's just enough to come through the nut plates. Uh, I mean, it's people see the race and they, you know, obviously it's entertaining and it's fun to watch and all that stuff. But if people only knew all the craziness that goes into making these airplanes fast and, and uh, making them light, it's just amazing and mind blowing how much goes into it. How much gas do you burn during a race? Yeah. So uh, I can give you an estimate. <laughs> yeah, uh, it depends. So like, it depends on how you've got the engine set up and what, what you're doing with the engine uh, mixture wise. Uh, but the minimum takeoff uh, fuel, I think it's 12 gallons. Um, most of the time, you know, you'll burn six or seven gallons kind of thing is what it is. Okay. So uh, it's not that much fuel because you're, there's a lot to do with it. It depends on how far the racetrack is from the race airport. Depends on what kind of strategy you're trying to use. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. So it, it's always evolving and it's always changing. And it'll be different from pilot to pilot. I might be thinking about it too much, but you know, you're trying to move that CG aft, you know, you're inking every last ounce of weight out of the plane. And I know it's a short race, but is the plane, does it change its handling characteristics throughout that race or is it too short to notice? It's too short to notice. Yeah. You want the way that the length of the race and the way the airplanes are set up, you don't notice like fuel burn or anything like that. If that's what you're asking. Yeah. It's like, as you burn, if you have it set up for ferry flying, as you burn fuel off, you'll feel the CG come forward, uh, on the edges, but the race, the way the fuel is and all that kind of stuff, you won't, you won't feel any change at all with it. Yeah. So again, this is kind of like, Flying different planes, right? Like I just, there's some things I just never have to worry about, but I think about other planes you'd have to worry about, uh, accelerated stalls and things like that. Is that a factor? I know the Red Bull capped the G's at some point to like 12. I might yep. making that up. It's 12. Was yeah the rationale behind that? Are you worried about accelerated stalls? Is that a thing or? Yeah. So you'll see that, uh, in VTMs or vertical turning maneuvers, which is basically just a half cube and how we turn around that's where you make up the most time uh, in a racetrack, or that's where you have the opportunity to make up the most time in a racetrack if you do it properly. And you'll see guys hit high-speed stalls all the time. And it uh, depends on how big and how deep in the stall you get. You know, It'll cost you a second, second and a half, which is huge because yeah. you're winning by tenths of a second. So if you do hit a high-speed stall, you're done. The reason why the G-Rule came into place, Jason tells this story all the time in the it must have been like 2006 or 2007 when the Red Bull race kind of first started going. And as the rule book started growing, uh, they were in, I think it was Berlin and there was no speed limit rules. So you could, so now you come in at 200 knots ground speed. They have all these computers on the airplane and they're very sophisticated. They know everything that you do. You come in at 200 knots and it's judged by the computer. If you go faster, you can be DQ'd and all that kind of stuff. So, But in the early days, before they had all this figured out, there was no speed limit. So you could just go as high as you wanted to and just dive it in. And whoever was the bravest (laughs) would be going the fastest, right? So uh, Jason always tells the story uh, of Kirby and Mike Mangold in in Berlin. It was a track, and the first turn was basically like a 110-degree right turn. So you had to go through the start gate, 
and then back over to your right. Well, Kirby and Mike Mangold uh, were just crazier than everybody else, I guess. And they would start at like 6,000 feet and just push the throttle forward and just dive it into the first gate. So they were pulling like 15 G's for the first turn. <laughs> and uh, like Red Bull, the air race organization thought it was awesome. Like it, they were announcing it over the intercom, like how many G's they were pulling and stuff like that. And a guy named Eric Zivko, who owns Zivko, who makes the edges, happened to be there. And apparently, uh, Mr. Zivko was not very happy that they were pulling 15 Gs in his airplane. Uh, so he's the one that put the number that you had to have. It can only be 12 Gs um, because of the manufacturing uh, specs. So uh, the G rule came because of Mike Mangold and Kirby Chambliss <laughs> being, uh, I don't know the right word for it, braver than everybody yeah. <laughs> else and pulling 14 and a half and 15 G's in a, in a Zivco edge. Well, it's like, is it plus or minus 12? Is that the manufacturer? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. right, that's how they got the plus 12 number. There's yeah. an engineering limit, right? Of 150% or something. That's probably right. But those guys didn't care. They just want to win a race. They don't care how many G's are pulling or anything, whatever, you know? So, so there was, that was when there was no speed limit. So you just go as high as you wanted to and just dive it in. So then they're like, okay, okay, well, you can't do that. Now you're going to have a helicopter hovering at a thousand feet and you got to be below the helicopter. When you come by the helicopter, if you're not below it, you're DQ'd. Well, that didn't matter. Then they just went to 10,000 feet and just screamed down through the helicopter because you had to be level. And then they still have the same speed. So then they're like, okay, so that's how we got the ground speed rule. So now 200 knots ground speed is how, how we have the start rule. So uh, again, just those guys reading in between the lines, reading yeah. what the rule book doesn't say, not what it does say. And that's why the rule book is just continuously growing and getting bigger. That's why the Navy gets to do whatever they want, because they look at it. It's like, what did the, what does the rule book, you know, what does it say? If it doesn't say I can't do it, then you can do it. Air forces. It. If it's, if it's not in the rule book, you can't do it. You know, it tells you yeah. what you can do. So I like that style. Just, yeah, it's not in the rule book. So go do it yeah. until they change the rules. Yeah. So Paulo gets, uh, Paulo gets paid to read in between the lines and read what it doesn't say. Yeah. That's wild. I had no idea. So when they put that speed limit cap on it, did it drastically change what guys? Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know how well you know Kirby. He's a funny guy. Um, the red line on a edge is 230 knots or whatever. And this, in the early days, they didn't have all the sophisticated computers on the airplanes. And uh, so I know the number of indicated airspeed that they were seeing at that race in Berlin. I'm not going to say it, but it was, <laughs> let's just say it was well over the red line. So, they were going super fast. Yeah, making it happen. Hey, if you're gonna, if you yeah. if you want to win, you got to go fast. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So, uh, Jason tells a story and of watching Mangold, Mike Mangold, do it, and Kirby's like, "Look at that idiot!" And he does a fast time, and uh, next time Kirby just did it even more. So it's just the way the race works is if you want to win, you just got to do a little bit more than the next guy. So they just kept getting higher, 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 and going faster, faster, and faster, and pulling harder, harder, and harder, and. Uh, <laughs> Is what it is. Well, rolling into 2022, have they announced uh, what cities are going to have the races or how many races are going to be? Yeah, the you can keep up with the World Championship Air Race on all social platforms. It's at the Air Race. Okay. Uh, the schedule should be out within the next month, I think is what their goal is. Uh, I know that they already have a bunch of host cities interested. They're a little hesitant right now just because all the COVID and not knowing what's going on in the world. Uh, and certain places are still locked down and stuff like that. So I think the schedule will be out soon. Again, it'll be all over the world. And what I was told is there will be one race in the United States in 2022. 
Okay. Which seems like that's about, that was about the average for Red Bull, right? Just one, one or two. Yeah, one yeah. or two that you'd find it. So uh, that'd be cool. Looking forward to that. It'll be fun to see planes flying around fast and racing each other again, you know? For sure. Yeah, I'm ready to get back going. Ready to not be locked in the house. So No doubt. What's your uh, next air show? Uh, I have Barksdale Air Force Base this weekend, which is my home show. Okay. Uh, so excited about that. It's going to be... It's going to be a drive-in show, which is going to be interesting. Yeah, okay. You know, and I, I'm honestly surprised that we're having a show at an Air Force base. I think this will be the first one. I was going to say that, that actually is surprising because most DOD shows, I think, have already canceled for this year. There might, I know there's, yeah. there's like one or two, Barksdale being one of the examples, um, but I think most of them have already just said, nope, we're done, and they'll they'll punt it till next year. Yes, we were told it was just up to the wing commander, I guess, okay. of what they want to do and ours is like no, we're having it. So it's drive in, uh which is better than nothing. Um should be interesting to see how it goes. Glad to get back going. It's really good for the community and local economy and just ready to get back flying, man. It's going to be a good show. They put a, together a good lineup and we have the Thunderbirds and the F22 demo and myself and Rob Holland and Matt Yunkin and um shockwave with and chris darnell yeah, shockwave truck so uh should be a good show and i know people are ready to get out of their houses and and uh have something fun to do well so yeah i was just down at sun and fun what two or three weeks ago and it seemed like everything was normal normal it was good like obviously there's a pent-up energy to get out and get back to it which is cool to see yeah for sure yeah i'm looking forward to it i know you are and all the rest of the world is so hopefully no uh we're on the downhill slide of this thing and everybody's healthy and safe and we'll get back to normal life no doubt well kevin as we wrap up here man i always like to ask guests you know if you found 15 16 year old kevin walk on the streets you bumped into him is there any kind of advice you would give him tips tricks or maybe say hey do this instead of that yeah i think um i would i would probably tell myself a couple things uh actually when i'm thinking about it uh probably enjoy the journey a little bit more. I was so focused on what I wanted to do and what I wanted to accomplish that I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. Flying's a fun thing or whatever you choose, baseball or basketball, golf, whatever. It should be fun. And I think that I took a little bit of the fun out of it just because of how focused I was and and what my goals were. And then I think the other thing that I would probably tell myself is for sure, don't give up. You know, obviously there's only 12 pilots in the new air race in the top class out of the world, 12 pilots. Um, so your, your, uh, chances of getting one of these spots are super low, yeah, right? No so doubt. the odds are definitely against you. They're never with you. Uh, and there was no guarantee that I would get to this spot. So there were definitely times, you know, as I was 16, 17, 18, 19, that I didn't know if I was gonna be good enough to make it where I wanted to be. And obviously my family spending a lot of time and a lot of money to to help get me there before I was getting paid to do it full time and um you know so there were, there was a lot of doubt in myself a few times of like man am I good enough to do this like am I going to be good enough to to have Red Bull as a sponsor you know so I think that'd be the two things enjoy it a little bit more have a little more fun with it don't be so serious all the time and then uh you know don't give up so it would have been very easy to give up and I'm glad that I didn't Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining me. Can uh, Again, right before we part, tell everyone where we can find you if they're looking out there on the uh, interwebs and then also, again, uh, hit on the air race. 
Yeah. So uh, all my social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is all at the Kevin Coleman. The Air Race now is the Air Race uh, on all social platforms. So you'd be following along on that. They'll be giving updates uh, continuously now. They just announced all the pilots, which is great. So yeah, we're just follow along and you'll get to see. Uh, I'm trying to be a little more open with my life and uh, show what's going on and going on with the team and a little bit of my personal life and yeah, man, we're just out there hustling, trying to get the plane ready, trying to put more sponsorship together. The, you know, the funding is the hard part uh, of these deals. <laughs> so, uh, just trying to get the money in place and having a good time, and hopefully uh, win some races and represent the United States at a very high level and bring home a Air Race World Championship back to the United States. It hasn't been done since 2006, I believe. So, I think we'll have a good opportunity to do that. And uh, just looking forward to to representing my country and uh, winning races and and winning the championship. Love it, man. I look forward to seeing you out there racing. Look forward to seeing you at air shows. So, Kevin, thanks again for taking the time, man. Yeah, Rain, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening in. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember, swing over to iTunes, leave a rating or review. That helps the podcast grow. Additional content, and if you're looking to support the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. Until next time.